It's time to talk sports. It's Hacksaw's Headlines. A panorama of the world of sports. Stories, comments, and opinions. Now, here's iconic sports talk show host Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and co-host John Riley. Who wants to talk football? We do. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Lee Hacksaw Hamilton along with my co-host John Riley, and we welcome you to bonus coverage of the NFL playoffs, our special Monday podcast. John, we had good games, we had bad games, we had blowout games, we had upset games, and a ton of fallout after what we saw Saturday, Sunday, and we got one more playoff game tonight. Wow, what a wild weekend of football. I mean, it's, it was always one of the best weekends of the NFL season, you know, this weekend and next weekend, which we'll talk to talk about later. But we have to talk about what happened in Jacksonville. That was just an utter disaster what happened with the with the Chargers. I mean, let's break that down. Well, that's the, the top story that's being written about nationwide, being discussed nationwide, because there could be a whole bunch of fallout as a byproduct of what happened. Let's start with Jacksonville, the Chargers, historically maybe the worst moment in Charger history. And this is a franchise that if you go back had been involved in some brutal games in past history. The Ice Bowl game, Dan Fouts era, Chargers, Cincinnati, and what many thought was a Super Bowl team never, ever got there. The Chargers, 49ers, Super Bowl, Steve Young, six touchdown passes. And then you had all the playoff failures, the Marlon McCree interception fumble that allowed Tom Brady in New England to come back and beat them, the Nate Kading three-blown field goals. There's just been a mountain of issues with failures in big games, but this one is catastrophic because this was a 27-0 lead that turned into a 31-30 setback in Jacksonville. And, John, I think the implications as it relates to the coaching staff and maybe the front office are pretty significant. How did it happen? They got outcoached. They got outschemed. They got outhit. They lost their composure. They had already lost one wide receiver. Then they lost a few more receivers and tight ends during the course of the game. And then they let Jacksonville off the hook. It was just ugly from the end of the first half into the second half through the end of the game and the game-winning field goal. It, it was as bad a moment as I can remember in a long time in Charger football history because this team looks like it is built to be awful close to take the step to be in the AFC championship game. And instead, they're going to be like you and me watching it on TV right. next Sunday. Go ahead. I, I'll be honest with you. I was so upset I could vomit. I was so upset at what happened Saturday night in the second half of the game. I just lost my composure. And then to see what's happening on social media in San Diego and to a degree up in Los Angeles, because the vitriol, not so much against Justin Herbert and the team, but the vitriol is all resurfaced towards Dean Spanos, the Spanos family, and what they did. And here's the footnote to the whole thing, John, is you and I texted back and forth on the weekend. That defeat to Jacksonville happened on the sixth anniversary of the night Dean Spanos took this team out of San Diego. Holy cow, it just refueled everything. So you know how I felt. How did you feel? I mean, it's like instant karma is going to get you, oh. going to smack you right upside the face. So uh, it was 
incredible game. I mean, I, I was watching it and, you know, all these interceptions and Trevor Lawrence was throwing the ball all over the place. And the 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 um, Chargers had built a big lead. And then meanwhile, the Aztec game was on the other channel and I'm kind of bouncing around. And then I keep coming back to the Charger game and, and it gets narrower and narrower. And then the whole thing ends on that field goal at the end. As a former Charger fan, I took a little bit of glee in seeing the disaster on in Dean Spanos's lap because of what happened to us in San Diego. We felt burned. We feel like this is karma finally coming back. Yeah. Uh, what goes around comes around. So there's part of me that says, you deserve it. You own it. It's on you. But part of me feels bad for Justin Herbert because he has carried this thing to this point of being really good, but they have not been able to get over the line. And like I said, there's going to be some significant fallout, the end result of this terrible loss in Jacksonville. Go to the second topic on the table as it relates to the Bolts. Well, I mean, we want to break down what the coaches did because there was a lot of game planning here. You know, the analytics are involved. I mean, what's your take, Hacksaw? Uh, the Chargers ambushed Jacksonville early on. I never expected the first half to play the way it played out. The Chargers blitzed, and they historically have not been a big blitz team under Brandon Staley. They blitzed Travis Lawrence a lot. And then they press covered at the line of scrimmage with their corners, their linebackers, and they were jamming people up to within 10 yards of the line of scrimmage. And Trevor Lawrence really struggled. You could see in his eyes and his his mechanics. He could not go through his progressions. He did not know where the receivers were because he couldn't find them. And he had no time because there were blitzers coming. So there was no time to drop back or come out of the shotgun and throw deep. He didn't have enough time. And that's why we got tip passes. And that's why we got the turnovers. I mean... I've watched a lot of football in my life. I don't think I've ever seen four turnovers through the air and a fumble recovery in a half, in a first half alone. So that was staggering. The Chargers, I give them credit, they ambushed Doug Peterson and Trevor Lawrence. Then we got to the end of the first half, and the coverage backed off, and Lawrence took them down the field and scored. And then we get to the second half, and the Chargers get nothing out of the first possession when they could have maybe put the game away. And Lawrence, they start to come. And what happened was that Doug Peterson made adjustments. He took a tight end who normally lined up wide, moved him inside almost like an extra tackle. And suddenly, there was no pressure on that quarterback. And now Lawrence has got a lot of time for plays to develop, guys to get downfield, guys to run crossing routes, picks and all that. And suddenly he's spraying the ball all over the field. No pass rush, no pressure, no hits in the second half against Trevor Lawrence after dominating him and physically intimidating him and psychologically ruining him in the first half. None of that happened in the second half. So Peterson won the chess match, as you alluded to, with what adjustments he made. And then he started to do dumping runs out on the flat, and suddenly he's making the Bolt defense cover sideline to sideline. And they got good speed receivers, and then those guys were getting open down the field, and the Charger DB started to blow the coverages. I saw guys looking around at other guys as the receivers were going by him. So it was an utter state of collapse. To complicate it, Peterson hit the Chargers with things they had never seen before. And a prime example 
is on the fourth and one call towards the end of the game. They showed what would be called, I'd call it a jumbo formation. They had three tight ends in the game as blockers. And we thought, fourth and one, jumbo package, Travis Etienne is going to take the ball and run behind this mass of humanity, get the first down. Instead, Lawrence pitches it. Etienne goes wide, goes 25 yards. Game over. Chargers never adjusted to anything that that old ball coach did to the young pup coach. So Peterson outcoached, outschemed, outscammed Staley. And I was disappointed at Joe Lombardi's play calls. I don't understand the collapse in the secondary. Ronaldo Hill, the defensive coordinator, could not make adjustments. So checkmark, Jacksonville's coach played a huge role in this game flipping. Well, I mean, Peterson has a great track record, right? In Philadelphia. Yeah, in Philadelphia as a coach, but he was a player for a long time. Well, he was a backup quarterback mostly, right? Um, So he's been around the game probably longer than Staley's been alive. (laughs) Um, But it was interesting that jumbo package you allude to. I saw the quote from Peterson. He said, when they're packing inside... Then we go outside, you know, and that's what worked. It's just uh, misdirection, getting them off, uh, off of balance. Yeah. Charger coaching staff really looked bad. And again, for what was supposed to be an elite team going deep into the playoffs, we had a chunks of game during the season where this coaching staff could not respond. They, I just don't get the sense that they can make adjustments on the fly or they can make adjustments at halftime to go to plan B if plan A no longer works. That's a big issue as it relates to the head coaching leadership. Third topic. All right. So um, we're talking a little bit about the, the quarterbacks. And, you know, on one hand, you, you do feel for Justin Herbert, right? I mean, we kind of have, we direct our vitriol to the ownership, not to the players. But you got to tip a hat to what Trevor Lawrence did in that second half. I mean, it takes a lot of character to pull yourself out of that hole and drive your team to victory. Well, there's there's something not right with Justin Herbert, and I think it has to be addressed in this offseason, whether it's with this coaching staff or if somebody else shows up. I don't understand how at six foot six he could get seven passes deflected at the line of scrimmage. You know, he's six foot six. There should be the ability to get the ball over the pass rushers, and there was not. So they've got to look at his mechanics. Now, Phillip Rivers had that sidearm thing, mm-hmm. and he got some passes knocked down, but I can never recall Rivers having that many in one game deflected. So the Chargers are going to have to evaluate the mechanics of Justin Herbert and whether there's an adjustment that can be made to help him get the ball out of traffic over the guys coming with their arms up. And everybody, everybody in Jacksonville, it's another coaching thing, everybody in Jacksonville was rushing this. Mm. And they weren't getting blocked out. And you Charger offensive lineman, patchwork as it was, young as it was, you've got to take those guys down. You can't let them get their arms up. So Justin Herbert did not have a lot of a lot of help along the way. And then of course we have the Mike Williams debacle. You think Mike Williams would have made a difference in that game in Jacksonville oh, yeah, instead of sure. playing in that meaningless game in Denver? You got that. And then they lost Dwayne Carter, the kick return guy. He went down. He never came back. And then the tight end, Gerald Everett, who kind of carried the mail for them a lot, catching passes. He got hurt. He never came back. And 
they ran some really stupid plays. They ran a jet sweep with the backup wide receiver, Michael Bandy, who replaced Carter. Bandy had never practiced that play, promptly fumbles the jet sweep handoff, kills the drive. There's just so many complications of things that were not covered, or why did you call this with a guy who hadn't practiced this? And what are you going to do about your quarterback? Just a mess. Trevor Lawrence, like I say, he's known nothing but success at Clemson. Horrible first year under Urban Meyer. You can see the growth of him the back half of this season under Doug Peterson's tutelage. I was really impressed. And, I mean, he looks so flustered and so out of sync and, and so confused in the first half. He looked like a reincarnated different person in the second half, and coaching has a lot to do with that because they put the player in a position to win. Your turn. So, I mean, you talk a little bit about um, Justin Herbert and getting those passes deflected. Do you think he's trying to do too much of that Patrick Mahomes kind of, you know, submarine underhand kind of pass? Is that well, what he threw, threw a, a lot more in this game than I've ever seen him throw before, but that's because the guys were on him. Guys yeah. were on him and the hands were coming. Mm-hmm. He's trying to find a receiver and Get the ball out of there. So they've, they've got to make an adjustment there. Yeah. So it, it was is something. And you, you, you feel for the kid because he is such a rising star. But he's left out of the divisional series this coming weekend. All the other star quarterbacks made advance through, but, but not Herbert. And, you know, I think the other alarming part is his explosiveness has gone away. His ability to put the ball in the end zone has gone away the second half of the season. Is that a byproduct that people have figured out the offense they're running? Is it a byproduct of Keenan Allen out of the lineup, Mike Williams out of the lineup? We don't have a Pro Bowl tight end. There's too much reliance on Austin Eckler. There's just a lot of complicating factors here as it relates to the the kind of numbers and statistics Herbert was putting up that he's not putting up right now. Next question. All right. So uh, let's take a look at what's going on with the coaching situation. Is Brandon Staley's job at risk? Everybody around the country, John, is of the opinion, yes, and that he should be removed. Uh, To me, that's also uh, awful impulsive to do anything. And we'll, we'll just separate the fact that a great coach like Sean Payton is out there. Is it too soon for them to remove Brandon Staley or do you need to give him more space to grow and learn? I think he's a, I call him a bright light. Mm-hmm. I think he's a dynamic guy. He's one of the most intellectual coaches I've ever been involved with. Uh, I like him a great deal. He, all coaches go through bumpy roads. All coaches go through, gee, I wish I hadn't done that syndrome. Uh, I would not remove him. Now, maybe they need to look. They need to look at Joe Lombardi, the offensive coordinator, because the offense right now is not what the offense was his first year. Maybe they need to look at that. Maybe they need to look at the secondary coach, because those guys have blown too many coverages and allowed too many chunk plays over the back half of the schedule for the second year in a row. So maybe there's an adjustment or two coming in Staley's coaching staff. In terms of Spanos, there's a whole layer of things we need to consider. One, is he going to pay Sean Payton $10 million a year? Because that's the rumor mill around the league from the people I network with, that he wants six years, $60 million. He wants full control of the football team. That means all player personnel decisions are at Sean Payton's desk. Spanos historically has been cheap as it relates to paying coaches. And to give full player personnel authority to Sean Payton 
Is Dean going to walk into the office next door to John Spanos, the president of football operations, and saying this is no longer your job? I find that one really hard to believe. Uh, John Spanos and Tom Telesco are combined 81 and 86. They've only been to the playoffs three times in the 10 years that they have been together. I have a hard time thinking Dean would hit the eject button on his kid. There's also draft pick compensation that has to go to New Orleans. Forever hires uh, Sean Payton. Payton's intimated today the draft pick compensation might be as high as a third-round pick. Third-round pick has a lot of value. So is Spanos going to pay the money, remove his kid, pay the compensation, and then give the keys to the entire building to Sean Payton? There's a lot of, lot of angles to the story here that uh, he's got to consider. I think there's an intangible thing that needs to be addressed. They've had back-to-back years of horrific injuries. Is it bad luck? Are they just football game injuries? Or is there something not right with how they prepare these players that all these players keep getting hurt? Although injuries are everywhere. If you look at the IR list of teams around the league, it's it's staggering how many players are hurt. So like I say, there's a lot of different layers that they, they have to consider. If I were king... I would not fire Brandon Staley. They've pushed this franchise and drafted this roster to the point they're right at the brink of taking the next step. And the next step is the division game. Next step might be the AFC championship. I think I'd go another year with him, but but Brandon Staley's got to do some intensive evaluation of what's around him on his coaching staff and are they doing all the right things and the ability to grow and make decisions on the run when they have to make changes because there's a, there's a lot of problems there. Okay, I've espoused all my philosophies. <laughs> Tell me yours. So if if I'm the Chargers and I have a chance to get Sean Payton, I do it. And I know you got to give up a lot to get him, but – this is an opportunity where you have all of this talent. You've got a proven coach, a winning coach, and you just said that the front office is 81 and 86. So, you know, why bother even keeping your, your, your um, you know, your president of football operations? This is why nepotism is such a dangerous thing to play around with because you back yourself into a corner. But if the right thing for the Chargers should do, in my opinion, is get Peyton. And that's why they won't do it because they're the Chargers. They're going to end up doing the wrong thing. And, you know, sure, if you blow out your head coach, you have to start everything over and it slows down the momentum. You got to build new systems, new culture, everything else. I get that. But Staley has made the mistakes last or on Saturday. I mean, he left Mike Williams in the game on, on the final week of the season. I mean, there's been so many boneheaded things that he's done. There's a lot of other coaches out there that can maybe lead this team more adequately. Tell you what, organizationally, under Spanos in recent times, since John Spanos was named president of football ops, they have hired Mike McCoy, who I thought was going to be, as a coordinator, become a pretty good head coach. Gone. Hired Anthony Lynn. That didn't work out. Now you're going to eject Brandon Staley after just two years on the job. So what does that say about the owner Mm -hmm. and his football president of operations son and to a degree the general manager? You're going to trust these guys to make the right decision? I don't know. Tough. It's to me, it's a really, really tough call. Well, I read an article also that the there's a. There's something going on here with the Rooney rule could complicate things because if the Chargers um, are 
basically going to hire Peyton, then those interviews might just be kind of fake interviews. Um, so I've heard some people say that if they're going to hire a head coach, he has to say he's not going to take Peyton so that black coaches can have a legitimate chance in an interview. Well, this will be another argument for another time. The Rooney rule to me is, has, is a very positive effect. But you are correct. Is there an African-American minority that is going to go through the interview process just so they can check off. I interviewed a couple of blacks, right. minorities. It's a big issue. But at the end of the day, the owners have the right to hire whom they want to hire to run their franchise. I've told, I've talked to African-American assistant coaches who kind of brought that up to me. I don't want to be a token. My response to them is, go through the interview process. You go into that interview and you bring your scouting report on that team and what you think of that team and what you could bring to that team. Even if you don't get the job, you get the experience and the exchange of information with that owner. Maybe that owner doesn't hire you, but maybe there's another opening and another team and he's friends with that owner. He says, you ought to talk to player A or coach A. I talked to coach A. We didn't hire him, but I really liked his approach, his philosophy, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think you always go through the interview process because you open doors, you meet more people, and you connect this dot to that dot that might lead to a head coaching job down road. Okay, on we go. Okay, so we're going to break down some more of these games, and we got to talk about the 49er game against the Seahawks. We were expecting a mud bath. It rained a lot, but the Niners pulled it out. They got a break in the weather. It, it was raining sideways two hours before the game, but the field was totally covered. And it did rain, but not to the point it made it a quagmire. Uh, so Seattle got sledgehammered. That's all I can say. Uh, you know, there, there, there's a part of me in that first half that said, oh, Seattle's kind of figured this out. Uh, they went no huddle offense, and then they started to pound the ball with Kenneth Walker, and they got two touchdowns. But there's also a part of me says, that's a great San Francisco team, John. And yeah, you scored on two drives. What are you going to do on the other seven drives in the game? And he did nothing on the other seven drives of the game. And San Francisco's defense was relentless. They just wear you out. Brock Purdy started to make plays. He wound up throwing for 331. McCaffrey had 130 all-purpose yards, including a 72-yard run. Debo, 73-yard touchdown pass. They can score any time from anywhere on the field, and they can take the ball away from you on any snap. They just played typical sledgehammer San Francisco 49er football. John, they've won 11 straight. The kid quarterback, Mr. Irrelevant, is now 6-0. and Just absolutely amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's fantastic what's happening with the Niners right now. I'm really excited. I mean, these are my childhood team. But it was a little bit uncomfortable at halftime because they were down by a couple of points. Well, like I said... Lucky for you, Seattle, you did something for two possessions. Can you keep it up? Answer was absolutely not. I really think two weeks from today, you and I are going to be sitting here talking about San Francisco, Philadelphia, NFC Championship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what it's looking like for sure. Next question. All right, so let's go and talk a little bit about America's team. You know, the the Dolphins-Bills game, we expected this to be a blowout. It didn't turn out that way. Miami... Somehow, some way, made enough plays down the field to hang in this game and actually have the lead. And they did it with the third string quarterback, Skylar Thompson. 
although his numbers were horrific. He was 18 for 45, threw for about 220. He hit a, hit a couple of big plays down the field, and that's where they built all the yardage. What worries me about Buffalo is they, they continue to turn the ball over, John. They're not playing at the level they played out the first half of the season. Then Josh Allen continues to put the balls in coverages that he wasn't doing the first half of the year. He didn't do it last year and maybe the year before when he was starting to become a superstar. So I just don't understand where his mindset is in terms of why are you throwing that pass into that type of coverage Heck, if I can see it on TV, why can't you see it in the pocket? I mean, the turnovers and the red zone turnovers to me are really, really alarming because red zone, that's gold. Mm-hmm. You've got to score touchdowns, especially when you're playing other really, really good teams. Buffalo's defense did, did bail them out finally. Allen wound up with a pretty decent statistic day. Miami pushed the, the rock up the hill as about as far as they can with a third-string quarterback. But, boy, there's still some questions about Buffalo's offense and maybe their personality of what they're doing. Or maybe that's just offset because they got two running backs that are doing a lot of good things, and they got Stephon Diggs and the receiver on the other side, and that tight end's catching touchdown passes against them. Maybe it's much ado about nothing. Maybe it's me worrying about what the quarterback's doing when the reality is, boy, do they have a lot of weapons. Yeah, it was interesting watching the game because at first I was like, Skylar Thompson, who is this guy? You know, and I have to look it up. Oh, Kansas State. Yeah, he had a good track record there. There were times that he looked like he was completely overwhelmed. Yes. Uh, but then every once in a while, man, he'd connect on a pass. You're thinking, hey, maybe there's something here. But as far as uh, Buffalo goes, you're right. Josh Allen, we, we joke about how there's a little Wyoming still in him. But uh Sometimes, though, he can. they talk about it on television. It's just a flick of the wrist, and this beautiful pass will emerge from him. So he just has magic in him, and he just got to kind of you know, take care of the demons, and I think he could be great. Well, they're going to be playing at home this coming weekend. We'll talk more about that on our next podcast next Thursday. One team that got there, I never expected this to happen. One team that wound up going home, I never expected this to happen either. Well, we talked about this last week because the defense of the Vikings was their Achilles heel, and they ended up getting burned. Yeah, I don't know whether I should condemn Minnesota's defense for giving up 433 yards to the Giants, the Giants who had trouble moving the ball all season long, or whether I should just compliment Daniel Jones, who's really become a star. He's become the best quarterback in the city of New York, and they're kind of falling in love with him, and he's doing this on a contract year. The Giants refused to give him a contract extension when he was eligible, and the price tag on Daniel Jones has now gone up. He's done a heck of a job. He's got no-name wide receivers. He's got no names in the offensive line. The The defense is constructed. They just they play really hard back-alley football, and they they took Kirk Cousins out of his rhythm. I mean, Cousins had a 4,500-yard season. He threw for 273, and most of that was an afterthought. Uh, I was I was stunned. And, and the Vikings, I, I think Kevin O'Connell did a great job to get them where they were. But now they get through this offseason, and their exit meetings as they say goodbye to players, probably saying goodbye to a pile of those guys on defense because they were not very good defensively all year. And then they let the Giants put 400-plus on them. I think the stat uh, that I saw was that Minnesota has allowed 400 yards or more 
in 10 games this season. So it's it's like Kirk Cousins had to outgun everybody, and now they've kind of reached the end of the road. Hats off to Kevin O'Connell for what he did, but they got work to do in Minnesota just to, to change it. And I can't believe the Giants are still playing football. They're going to play again this weekend. They're going to go back into Philadelphia to meet the enemy, the Eagles, for a third time this year. Yeah, we feel bad about our local guy, O'Connell. Yeah, we were rooting for him. But as far as the Giants go, Saquon Barkley showed us a lot in that game. I mean, because we, you know he was such a high draft pick, we didn't hear a whole lot about him. He's been injured quite a bit, right? Yeah, well, a year ago, a tour knee ligament. I think he's had a good season. He's not had the consistent games where he goes for 100 every game. You have games where he gets 30. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, Daniel Jones is, is, is not only throwing the ball down the field, he's running. He had 301 yards passing and 80 more running the football. I don't like my quarterback running that much, but he's big and tough. And so uh, Giants, Giants are a pretty doggone good team. Yeah, I think we're learning more about Daniel Jones. Is he one of the up-and-coming stars? Um, and now I'll bet you money the Giants are going to re-sign him for oh, sure. for sure, for yeah. sure. On we go, next game. Okay, so um, let's talk about Cincinnati and Baltimore. This was another game with another backup quarterback, and I'm like, who is this guy? And he put up a, a better game than I expected. Well, Joe Burrow is Joe Burrow, and he's got Jamar Chase, and he's got T. Higgins and Joe Mixon and... Uh, Cincinnati's just continuing to play really fine football. Baltimore really gave them a run for their money. That thing, nice, nice term, street fight. That's really <laughs> what it was. It was a really mm-hmm. nasty, ugly AFC North game. Uh, Ty Huntley is from the University of Utah. He's got San Diego family here. He's Boy, he's a competitive kid. And I saw him do the same thing in the Pac-12 with Utah, and when he's had the chance to play, when Lamar Jackson's been hurt and out, he's been really competitive, and he did compete. I think he finished with 284 all-purpose yards, and his brassiness to stand in there and make plays with guys all around him mm-hmm. or move the pocket and still make plays, but they don't have enough offense. They, they have no running game to speak of. Uh, their wide receivers have all been hurt. Thank goodness he's got Mark Andrews, the Pro Bowl tight end. But he kept them competitive. And, you know, there, there's a weird undercurrent in Baltimore because Lamar Jackson's contract is expired. And he did not sign an extension because they wouldn't guarantee him all five years. He keeps getting hurt. Now the rumbling is Baltimore may say, we're not giving you five years guaranteed at $40 million a year. They may take all that money and go get players to put around Huntley. Huntley might be the quarterback of the future, and they just let Mar Jackson go off and get a contract and go somewhere else. That's that's the rumbling as of today. But, of course, like in L.A., and to a degree in San Diego, <laughs> nobody's real happy in Baltimore right now. But they were wrecked by injuries along the way, too. And, and as good as John Harbaugh's defense is, they just keep Defense can't play 60 minutes a game. So keep an eye on the quarterback storyline there in Baltimore. Yeah, it was a fun game to watch. Like you said, it was a street fight. It was exciting. And how about that play at the goal line where the fumble and went back 99 yards? Can you imagine a defensive end going 98 yards for the touchdown? (laughs) And, I mean, it, it was a tough play call. Hunley tried to go up over the top on a quarterback sneak on a fourth and one and got got into the air. But the ball got punched out. He never crossed the plane. All of a sudden, Sam Hubbard is down on the on, on the ground. Ball, boom, in his arm. Nobody's around him. Gets up and runs. 
Couldn't believe it. And he outran everybody. It was an absolutely stunning story. What a <laughs> what a turnabout in the game, for sure. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it was it was great. And, you know, we see some of the fans after the game smoking a cigar. So, you know, this the whole Joe Burrow <laughs> thing is wonderful. So uh, it, this is this is shaping out to be a great playoff season here. On we go. We do have one more game here in wildcard weekend. It's on a Monday night and we got Dallas and we got Tampa Bay and we got Tom Brady and we got Dak Prescott and we got question marks everywhere. Question one, Tom Brady's final game in Tampa Bay, walk free agent if he wishes. Does he wind up in Las Vegas relinking with Josh McDaniels, the head coach? They had quite a run together in New England. That's question one on the Tampa side. Question two, if Dallas doesn't win Mike McCarthy's final game, Cowboys, Jerry Jones, Sean Payton, connect the dots there. That rumor's been out there behind the curtain all year long. So that's that's where we are. Now, if we want to talk about the reality of the game, you got a really good Dallas defense. 54 sacks, 33 takeaways. Tampa Bay's got the right arm of the quarterback, and they got nothing else. They can't run the football at all. Now, it's been tough to get to Tom Brady. He's thrown 733 passes, been sacked only 22 times. He's had a phenomenal statistical season. He's got two receivers, 161 combined catches between Chris Godwin and Mike Evans. But they're strictly one dimension, and the dimension that Dallas's defense has is go get the quarterback and go get the ball. I think it's going to be a tough game for Tampa Bay. But Dak's throwing picks. Dak's fumbling the ball. He's had more turnovers this year than he's ever had. They're not running the ball like they used to run the ball in Dallas. Uh, So this game becomes a throwing contest between these two quarterbacks. So is it Brady's final game? Is it Mike McCarthy's final game? It's a game of question marks, John. Yeah, and and you said the Cowboys didn't really finish the regular season all that strong. Two and two. Two and two. So now they're facing a playoff team that is a sub-500 record. So it, it, it talk about an underdog, right? And they're on the road in you know Jerry World. So this is going to be a great game to watch tonight. NFC South. Everybody was underwater in the NFC South. And I'm not talking about <laughs> rainstorms and hurricanes. It wasn't a 500 team in the NFC South. Can you believe that? Okay, this will be fun. Now, fans forum, we got somebody here wants to contribute to this uh, show before we wrap it up. And again, for those of you who enjoy us on our live stream, uh, we remind you that we have a Fans Foreign segment at the end of every game, er, every show, so you can fire us questions uh, and and we'll get back to you. So ask a question, we'll give an answer. You don't like the answer, too bad for you, but welcome to our podcast. Go ahead, John. All right, we've got a couple here. This is uh, from Dick Thorne. He says, remove Dino. And he goes on to say, perhaps his sister can force it. So uh, who knows about the ownership stability, instability? We do know their history, though. Their history has not been good. Uh, their head coaches average a little bit over three years on the job uh, since the Spanoses took over. And all you need to do is just look back. This is a team that ran off the coach that led him to the Super Bowl, Bobby Ross. And this is a team that fired... Marty Schottenheimer, who went 14-2. and Oh, yeah. So, you know, the first family of football, I don't know that you can trust their football instincts. 
Next question. Okay, so let's take a look here. As Mark Lindsay says, lots of joy in seeing Spanos' chargers embarrass themselves yet again. He has some bad karma, and this will not help their minuscule fan base grow. Another 17 away games next year. Well, the, you know, when you hear that come out of the mouths of players that were used to playing on the road because we play on the road all season, even when we're at home, ooh, that's a bad statement. But that being said... Who would have thought, John, when we started the season, we did our NFL preview, one of the first shows we ever did, who would have thought both the Rams and the Chargers would be out of the playoffs at this point in time? What an absolute stunner that is. But uh, I don't know that they've made great progress as a franchise in, in the L.A. market. I still think when you think L.A. sports, you think Dodgers, you think Lakers, and then everybody else. Even though the Clippers have had a really nice run under that ownership of Steve Ballmer, they're still not front and center in the attention span of everybody else. So, uh, this is a big setback for the Chargers to play as poorly as they did and to lose this game. And now just just the tidal wave of bad feelings towards the Spanos family has just bubbled to the surface again. And even the guys in L.A., the, the columnists and the media in L.A. are making reference to the bad siege of criticism directed at the owner from L.A. fans. And by the way, the guys down the freeway in San Diego still don't like it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's just a disaster what's going on with the Chargers right now. And you know, when they played in that small stadium, it was totally a, a, an away game for them every sure. week. Now they're they got they're in the big stadium, you know, with with Cranky and. You know, hopefully they're building a fan base, but it's got to be tough. I mean, L.A. fans want a winner. The Chargers are a loser right now. So at this point in time, next question. Well, let's talk a little bit more about L.A. teams. There were some really good comments that came in on the live stream or on the uh, YouTube channel about the uh, Charles White situation with the with the Trojans. And this is from Ms. Alanius, <laughs> is her handle there. He uh, he was who all the boys wanted to be in my neighborhood in Pacoima, Rip White. Tell you what, he was a great college running back. He was unbelievable. I mean, we knew 6,235 yards, student body right at USC. Um, came to the Rams, led the league in rushing his first year. I think it was 1982, but that was a strike-shortened season. But, it, but he had injuries, and then— and lifestyle problems, substance abuse really impacted his life. Uh, I, I met him in Cleveland when I was working covering the Browns is when I first met him, but he was a shell of the running back he had been uh, with the Rams and obviously prior to that. So that's a sad passing. It's a, it's a terrible example of what substance abuse issues can do to a person's career and a life. Uh, he did come back to USC as an assistant coach, running backs coach, but his lifestyle continued, and they finally removed him, and they separated themselves. It was kind of a, a sad divorce along the way. But history will write. He's one of the four great ones. Um, and Anthony Davis, Charles White, Marcus Allen, mm -hmm. and Reggie Bush. I mean, four of the great ones of Tailback U. Yeah, I mean, it's just a really special legacy that the Trojans have there in USC. I think you can make an argument that the Trojans rank higher on the the, the, the ladder than the Chargers do right now. I mean, oh, well, if they ever start to win and win consistently and play any shred of defense, yeah, probably they do. Okay. Next question. Here's another one uh, from the uh, the YouTube comments. This is from Fat Albert, and he's talking about you know the the Sean McVay burnout situation. He says this guy reminds me a lot of Dick Vermeil. 
I hope he winds up in better shape. Well, he's coming back. Uh, we'll talk more about that in our Thursday podcast. But he is coming back. Uh, it took four days to make the decision. Uh, I think there's all kinds of realities here. He's too young to get out of coaching to go into broadcasting. Uh, he's got to learn to balance his life a little bit more. You are correct. The consideration that the last time we saw this publicly was Dick Vermeil. But I'll tell you what, I've been around these guys for a long time broadcasting NFL football and covering teams. These guys all do it the same. There's very few exceptions of guys that aren't in that office, sleeping in their office, doing it 24-7, 365. The pressure they put on themselves, that the owners put on them, the fans and the media expect of them is phenomenal. Uh, One of the most unique guys that I ever met was Chuck Knoll. The second most unique guy is one of his protégés, Mike Tomlin. They have a structure. We're going to get our work done during their structure. You are going to have a family life. You're going to have off days. Um, but those guys are few and far between. Every coach that I know, you sit with them in July when training camp opens, and they're suntanned and they look great and have had a pretty good off season. I'll guarantee you by week six of the regular season, they look terrible. And by the 12th week of the season, they look like death. They sleep in their office. They work ridiculous hours. They look at video till their eyes fall out. Uh, I I think there's just too much negative return by investing that much time into that one topic. You can only prepare so much. You got to have talent. You got to have luck that you don't get all your guys hurt. And you got to be creatively good to get the job done. But boy, I, and I laugh about this because I was I was really close to Schottenheimer. I was even closer to Bobby Ross when I was the voice of the Chargers. And to see where they were when training camp opened and how they looked and see where they were at the end of the season fighting for a playoff spot, they look like life. They look like death. They just... It's the nature nature of the business. Well, it's almost like a, the president of the United States when they first get inaugurated till when they finish their term. They look like two totally different men. Yeah. All right, listen, we thank you for joining us on our bonus podcast on every Monday. Thursday, we'll be back. We'll continue to cover the topics on the table as we do every Thursday. We invite you to subscribe so you'll get the alerts. Also invite you to go to my website. It is all written If you love sports, sample what I offer day by day. The website is leehacksawhamilton.com. John, have yourself a great day. We'll see you come Thursday. Looking forward to it. Thanks for being with us on Hacksaw's Headlines on our podcast. Join us again for Hacksaw's Headlines on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And find the audio version on your favorite podcast app. For more content, go to leehacksawhamilton.com.